everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of Two Lips, One Mic. I'm Anna. And I'm Cushy. So, uh, we've received some feedback that some of our episodes have been quite focused on quite dark content. So this week, we're going to focus on a bit more lighter content, if you call it that. <laughs> life for us, at least. Yes. So, we're going to be covering just a few ponderings about life, mysteries, um, and different paths that everyone's taking. Um, we're also going to talk about Roxy Jasenko's recent comments in relation to work and whether or not um, millennials in particular are too entitled and too lazy when it comes to the workplace. And then finally, we're, we've saved the juiciest, um, fluffiest part till last. We're going to talk about the phenomenon that is married at first sight, which sadly ended last week and has left millions of Australians without any sort of um, content to fill in the gaps. I literally feel like my Sundays like are empty now without the commitment ceremony. Yeah, my Sundays, Mondays and Tuesdays. It's a big readjustment. It actually was impeding in our social lives. I remember <laughs> we were specifically not doing things because we'd rush home to watch maths. In fairness, we would hang out a lot together when to watching watch maths. maths. Exactly. That <laughs> is a social interaction of sorts, I think. All right, so to start us up this week, we're going to talk about sort of a bit of a recap on life. Um, and this was my topic that I suggested to you, I think because we've both been talking about it so much and I thought maybe it'd be something we could share with some of our listeners. So for me, I think it was catapulted by the fact that I'd attended this wedding, which was like fucking next level for <laughs> And so, you know, dealt with all the lovey-dovey part of that. Also, um, pregnancy announcements and arrivals and stuff like that. And just generally, I think I was wondering what I'm doing in my career. And mm -hmm. so I was just wondering if you were thinking the same since... And then we did that mother, the motherhood for the book club. Yeah, so we recently joined this book club with like other 20-something-year-olds. And um, there were some really interesting discussions to be had during that event. So one of the people that attended was talking about the fact that she was more or less putting her career on the back burner while she supported her husband and moved overseas to support his career aspirations. And just kind of the mixed feelings that brings up because, you know, women nowadays are raised to be really independent and really ambitious, but then you kind of have to wrestle that with the compromises that you make in relationships. And Sometimes it feels a little bit like you're letting down the sisterhood when you do that. Absolutely. And I, I, I thought it was such an interesting example because we've been talking about it in a very abstract term in terms of um, like maternity leave and who would be responsible for taking on, like how you divvy out finances. I think we've been talking about it very academically. Mm -hmm. But to see that as an example of someone, and you know, you read things like Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In and stuff like that, and I totally get what you're saying. It feels like you're letting down the sisterhood by stepping back to um, for the greater good of your relationship. And I think it's it's at this stage in our 20s now where those roads are starting to open up. Like I've got a number of friends who are like you and want to move overseas, um, not overseas, interstate or elsewhere, like mm. away from Melbourne mm. to pursue their goals. And then on the other side, I've got people who are really domestic, like they've got that domestic um, – goals and they want to start a family and they want to buy their first home or already bought their first home and buy an investment property or whatever it is and for me I think personally I feel like I'm really in the middle because I don't know which way I want to go mm -hmm. have you just thought about carving out your own way like 
you are in a long-term serious relationship, but you're also quite career-minded and doing well at work. And you seem like you're sort of straddling the two quite well. I think it's, this is the first time I've ever felt like pressure, like societal pressure. Because like what you're saying, I've always carved my own way in terms of doing things. Like my relationship is quite different to other people's relationship. And um, I've always kind of um, been proud about that. But now I think I'm just feeling a bit of like that pressure about going against the curve. And like, Mm -hmm. then it's made me like have self doubt and kind of wonder like, what am I doing? Like, that's been my question Mm -hmm. for myself all month. Yeah, I've, I've been feeling the same. And I think it's a case of, you know, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, because I am not in a relationship currently. And so most of my focus has been on why I'm not in a relationship Mm. when it seems like, and obviously I know a lot of this is about perception more than it is about reality, but yeah, it seems like a lot of people around me are in long-term serious relationships. They're living together. They're getting engaged. They're getting married. They're having children. And I'm in the last year of my twenties wondering, (laughs) oh my God, what am I doing? Um, But then earlier today, for example, I was speaking with a friend who'd Um, spent most of her morning counselling another friend of hers who was having the complete sort of opposite existential crisis where Mm. she's been with her husband since high school and she's kind of like unsure about the fact that, you know, has she lived her best life and maybe she needs to separate and like carve her own path and focus more on her career. So I just feel like, yeah, you know, it's just a case of wanting what you can't have more or less. I think it also is a matter of who your closest friendship um, Mm. circle is because I think a a large part of why I felt quite um, insulated from having to deal with these societal pressures that you're talking about now is because a lot of my friends, my closest friends, it's not a thing. Like, you know, we've got one of my close friends, Annika, is currently in Jordan living her best life. And, like, you go into the Northern Territory and, like, other friends are in relationships, but it's not – the only thing that defines them Mm. and I think um it's just the more peripheral people that you know I might still have on Instagram and knew them from university or something like that it's having that content like in my face that's really made me be like oh is this what the real world I'm meant to be doing yeah yeah me too um so what do you think is the answer to that I don't know (laughs) I just it's just something that I've been constantly thinking about in the last couple of weeks and even just with respect to career direction as well Mm. like um I felt really really handheld through the first couple of years of practice like you know when you're a graduate um and then when you become like a first year and second year um you know the path is pretty defined and it's pretty um yeah it it's like a ladder almost. Yeah. But now that I'm sort of heading towards my third year and like it's I identified it as kind of that itch mm-hmm. because it's the third year of practice that I see a lot of people from some of the top tiers move on to do the UN, to go to Geneva, to go study over in the States or something like that. And I remember my tutors at university, a lot of them were third year in private practice and then they decided to come into academia. Mm -hmm. And so there's something about this year that kind of generates that restlessness and that quest for more. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where I'm at, but I'm just stuck on trying to define what that more is for me, I suppose. Mm. I was wondering what you think about that for your career. Um, You know, I think I've 
always been someone that's liked to pre-plan my life, whether it be personally or professionally. So when I was in high school, I had a really clear idea of what I wanted to do at university. And when I was at university, I had a really clear idea of what I wanted to do during my first few years in the workforce. And I think um, when I moved up to the Northern Territory, um, I had a lot of things that didn't go to plan. Mm. Um, so, you know, I had a major relationship breakdown. I ended up changing jobs. I ended up moving cities. And sort of all of that unexpected change really forced me to reevaluate my propensity to plan everything. Yeah. And so I've more or less gotten to this point where I accept the uncertainty for what it is. Sometimes I do ruminate on it more than I would like to, but I accept it overall for what it is. And I just keep trying different things. And hopefully in the process of trying different things, I get a better sense of self and what I really enjoy doing for work. I agree with you. I think like in our generation, we've spoken about this before. um, I don't care so much about getting an ongoing permanent role somewhere anymore. Like I'm more happy to sit in that uncertainty Mm -hmm. to take the risk. And generally the risk takes you places. Yeah. And that would have been unexpected for like people of our parents' generation, for example, where people would, you know, sign up with an employer and more often than not stay with that employer for most of their professional working life. But I think that's also a part of um, businesses don't run the same way that they used to now. There's no concept of loyalty mm-hmm. um, and there's no no sense of having to give back. And it will be interesting um, when we discuss the next topic about business and, and their employees. But the relationship, I think, has fundamentally changed over the last few decades Mm -hmm. um, where you can no longer just settle in a job forever Mm -hmm. unless you know your dream is to become a partner at like a top tier law firm that's pretty much like a very set trajectory Mm -hmm. and you can work towards those goals but I think for most people um, and now that we have the freedom to do side hustles and the freedom to pursue other things in addition to work I think people are looking at other places like I look at someone like Sarah Holloway who um, started Match and Maiden and now she's got this podcast and stuff like that. She was, um, I think, at one of the top tier law firms. She was, you know, pretty happy, like not happy, content being um, like a mergers and acquisitions lawyer. And then um, it wasn't until she realised that it wasn't that she was unhappy, but it wasn't that she was happy. Mm. And that is the tipping point that made her decide to invest all her energy into doing this much of business mm. um, and becoming what she calls a entrepreneur. Um, <laughs> Love it. So millennial. Oh, so millennial. And she does have like a pretty much an Instagram um, led life now, which mm. is something that wouldn't have been thought about 10 years ago. Like, mm. do you remember how we were using Insta like 10 years ago? Yeah. Well, I definitely filters. Using it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. But yeah, I think... You know, uncertainty is not a bad thing. And like you said, it offers a degree of adaptability and flexibility that having that defined career path or that defined relationship trajectory doesn't afford you. Mm. So coming to peace with it, and not even just coming to peace with it, but actually embracing it because it actually does have a lot of positives associated with it. I think that's the best way to go about handling it. I think to go full circle, the benefit of having and embracing that uncertainty, particularly what you're talking about here in like a work context, means that you don't have to, it, that's the benefit of not defining a relationship as well, I think. Yeah. That's, that's my true. personal view. That's true. Now, I think the lesson can be applied to both, yeah, personal and professional endeavours. Like, again, I had a very pre-planned idea of what a relationship would look like, and now I'm in a situation where I have very 
ill-defined relationships. I don't even know if they're capable of definition. Do you reckon if you had to do it again now, you would not be expecting that of him? Oh, you mean my ex? Yeah. Um, don't think you can ever have expectations of anyone. I think you can have hopes of someone, but I can. you can't ever let someone else define your sense of self or you can't ever place your happiness yeah, in yeah. someone else's hands. So perhaps I would have approached it differently on reflection. Hmm. Because I think, like you were saying, it, it just sounds like you've evolved as much as I've evolved over the last two years. Mm. And I think the other reason I was reflecting a lot on this is because it was two years ago where we were both going through some very difficult times. Like, it is actually the two-year anniversary. I well, always remember this time. It's really funny because when you suggested doing this topic for the podcast today, mm. the first thing I did was um, reflect on both of our New Year's Eve episodes. Oh. <laughs> just because it is a real evolution, like you said, like... Yeah, so much change and so much upheaval has happened during that time and it's really interesting to hear those earlier episodes and sort of see how we've evolved. I'm going to need to do that. I yeah. can't even remember what It's eye-opening. Like. It's like having a diary and going back to the start and reading your entries and being like, is that the same person that we're, that's speaking now or that's like living their life now? It's pretty, yeah, revelatory. I wish we could have done podcasts when we were going through the heat of our like destructive <laughs> moments. I like, think those would have been really, really painful to listen to because for the most part I would have just been crying during them. No, I'm sure we would have been like... Um, it there was, was a lot of crying, Anna. It would be very interesting. I, I'm going to have to read back on my diaries now because I made a conscious effort when I was going through the shit stuff that I was going to document it because I want to see the progress. It's really interesting seeing how far you can come. I think it's a good reminder to yourself when you are going through a really rough time that... Um, it will pass Mm. like we always say that but it's actually very true yeah and so I guess we've gone full circle now in respect to that I mean I'm still going to be pondering I suppose about having those more um defined career goals Mm. I feel like I'm not like one of those people who've been able to like fly on to be like a senior and do this and like I mean, it's hard, you know, like it's it's such an entrenched way of thinking, like having that defined career path or that defined ideal relationship. But I think the fact that we're self-aware and we're self-critiquing is a step towards actually changing it. Speaking about the topic of work, we've got um, earlier last week, we've got Roxy Jasenko, who's the... Um, founder of Sweaty Betty, a PR company, and some of the comments that she made in relation to the work ethic of Australians. I did not know about this article until you sent it to me, so did you want to um, read out some particularly controversial excerpts? Well, essentially she thinks that we're facing a bit of a crisis in terms of our work ethic of Australians, um, and some of the things she takes issues uh, with in is... Um, our education system she's saying it just seems to be Australia's mentality that if you've got a job five minutes that's okay there's just a lack of dedication a lack of care it upsets me we're not Australian the way we once were we think good enough will do it won't if you want to succeed as a country let's put the hours in Um, I love that she's conflated it with patriotism it's so uh, <laughs> she sounds like a politician, right? Like, I know. Justifying like, like ridiculous things. Yeah, exactly. And the leaners. So what are we being? We're being the leaners. Yeah. Um, 
She sounds like a micromanaging person. She sounds like someone I would never, ever want to work for. I'm trying to find the bit. Um, I still get insulting emails at 7pm on Sunday saying someone's poached me and that they've been here 10 months and begged me to be an intern, she says. How can you learn anything in six months? Um, and it's just, I think there was another article or another interview that she did where she was talking about expecting you to be on emails all the time. Um, and apparently it's a signature thing about her and how she builds relationships. So if you want to engage in her services, apparently she'll respond within minutes and she expects that out of her employees. And I guess she expects her employees to treat their business, her business as if it's their own. Right. Okay. (laughs) Interesting. I feel like once upon a time I would have been sympathetic to her viewpoint because I was often guilty of conflating work with life. Yep. But I think after the 2017 we both had, that really forced us to reevaluate the priority that work has in life. I'm actually not inclined to sympathise with that viewpoint. That's so scary that we could have been Roxy Jacinkos. I think I aspired to be her once upon a time. Like, I kind of took real pride out of talking about the fact that I was working really long days and, you know, working ten times as hard as most of my counterparts. Like, I don't know why on earth I thought that was something to be proud of, but I did. So, and also, I just hate this habit of, like, romanticising the past. Like... You know, our working conditions are a product of a union movement that worked really hard for workers to have the rights they have. So it wasn't all kumbaya back in the day. Like, there were many workplace rights and entitlements that were denied to people that she just seems to completely be oblivious to. This is a bit off topic, but a couple of weeks ago, um, I was listening to this podcast, Mamma Mia Out Loud, and they interviewed the HR representative of Mamma Mia, right. who was um, – so someone sent in a listener question saying, I want to take my lunch break, um, but there's this issue that um, there's – my general manager sits right by the door, and so I feel like I can't, you know, go out and take my lunch break because every time she sees me, she's always like, can you get my lunch for me? And it's a job that apparently she doesn't delegate to anyone but this particular person, and mm-hmm. so that's how it all started. It was an issue with lunch. Mm-hmm. The HR person then went into, like, glib comments, and I think she didn't mean it in the end, but it came off really bad, and mm-hmm. she was just like, who even gets hour-long lunches at now any anyway? And um, if you want to have an hour-long lunch, well, maybe you need to work in government. And oh, wow. <laughs> I was so pissed. I never comment on these message boards or anything like that, but I was like... Um, did, did you launch a tirade? I, not a tirade. It was respectful, but I was just kind of like... As a government worker, um, I think that was really rude and disrespectful and we put in our time. Mm -hmm. But we also know that we have fought very hard for a 40-hour work week. Mm -hmm. And so where we can, obviously we're not going to do free presenteeism hours, which is what some of these media companies, it sounds like it is. It's just presenteeism. You're just sitting there putting in the hours to make your boss to make it appear to your boss that you're there when really you're not. Yeah, and it seems to promote this false idea that more time at work or more work equates with better work as well. It doesn't. Just because you're the first person there or the last person to leave does not mean you're better at your job. In fact, quite the opposite, right? Like in my experience, i found that the best employees tend to be working parents and in particular working mums because time is of the essence they have a lot to do 
So when they are at work, they are bloody efficient about it. Absolutely. Especially our part-timers. They work really efficiently. No time for chit-chat. It's just straight down to work. Mm. And it's sad because they miss out, like, you know, part of work is um, the social aspect. But they don't have time for that because they have to get their shit done. Mm. And so I just thought this whole... Um, it, and it must be a media thing, I hope. I'm sure law firms... Mm, law firms are really guilty of it too. I just... I think uh, a lot of work environments, actually, medicine would be the same as well. Medicine is actually unpaid overtime, though. Mm. Like, and it's an expectation you do it. It's recognised, even though you're essentially dealing with people's life or death. That's not particularly different from law, depending on the legal environment you're working in. This is the shit thing about law, though, because I feel like you're not dealing with life or death. Mm. Everything that we do can be dealt with tomorrow. There's not something that is so important that you need to be there. I mean, you might get a slap on the wrist from the court. Mm-hmm. I don't know, contempt of court for not supplying with a, um, complying with a subpoena on time. Or, I don't know. Can I just say something about that point about court? Mm-hmm. Um, so, in my current job, um, we have students attend court um, for observations just to see, yeah, how judges and lawyers operate and cases progress and a student was telling me about an experience in the county court where she walked in on a judge berating a barrister for not being adequately prepared Uh and the barrister in question was trying to explain that they had been briefed at short notice and the judge said something back to the effect of well you should have been up all night working to the bone to make sure you were prepared And the student came and told me this as sort of like something to aspire to that, yeah, you know, you need to work really, really hard, even if it means foregoing sleep and foregoing meals. And I was horrified. I'm sure as a law student, Cushy would have been like, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Law student, Cushy would have been all about it. But we're adults now. (laughs) Adult, Cushy. And bodies break down. Exactly right. I was like, you know, it's funny because. Funny is probably not the right word, but it's ironic that on the one hand, we're all about mental health and the legal profession. And then on the other hand, we still have these really unhealthy work habits being ingrained by people in the profession towards their, you know, peers and subordinates. Like, it doesn't align. It's because shit rolls downhill. Like, whatever they do at the top, it's going to roll down to everyone. Yeah. Down to the bottom rungs. Yeah. And it's really sad because... We've had a number of magistrates suicide over the last few years and it's like, what more is it going to take you to realise that this approach is not sustainable? Mm. And I think maybe that's also part of the problem though because it seems like a disproportionate amount of the focus has been on the health and well-being of the bench and not so much on, say, the lawyers that are dealing with the grunt work or court staff that are being exposed to, like, you know, really traumatic things. Like, it needs to be profession-wide, this focus on health and well-being. But if it is focused at the bench, shouldn't that be filtering down? I mean, if I was a member of the judiciary who'd been, you know, counselled through this whole process about mental health, Mm -hmm. I would then be conscious about it. And that's why I have this approach Mm -hmm. now, because I've been through the counselling, I've been through... I can understand the science and the psychology behind it to now see the evidence behind it. Um, That's why I think it's even more reprehensible if they have that particular judge has been through Mm. that and is still treating his barristers like that. Mm. And to be frank, like at a magistrate's court level, I still do see what I think would constitute workplace bullying um, 
in a court environment. And But for the fact that it's a judge berating a lawyer, it's not bullying, which well, makes little to no sense to me. And I guess that's where the deferential treatment. Mm. And I think for people who don't work in the legal profession, it's very eye-opening because I remember speaking to Nick about the bowing thing. <laughs> oh, and yeah. like how a particular magistrate, um, we've been instructed that that magistrate likes the deep bow. And he was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> this is our justice system. Like yeah. to represent us, apparently, very ordinary Joe Blow on the street. Mm. That's what um, represents our A interests. deep bow equates with justice. Yeah. So <laughs> Go it's figure. a huge disconnect. And I think that's, um, and that's a, a problem that the profession, yeah, like you said, will need to mm. address um, otherwise it's going to continue just snowballing. But I think it's not useful having these comments from people who, like, Roxy Jasenko is a leading media personality, um, and so she does have a high level of influence. And if people are seeing that that's how she's doing that to get her business up, like, I think the other controversial thing she said in her essay um, or her interview or whatever was that um, she's doing a lot of work with the Chinese at the moment, and she was comparing Australian work ethic to the Chinese. Now... I know a lot of people who moved from Asian countries so that they don't have to do that, um, so that their children don't have to be educated in a system that heavily um, puts an emphasis on rote learning and no critical thought, no critical thinking, and no opportunity to be a person and have breathing time. Mm-hmm. Like, I take the point that we probably don't work as hard as them, but that's because we fought for those rights. So why are we fighting to slowly erode them by doing... Well, I think she's approaching it from a really short-sighted perspective. She's a business owner, though. No one's going to care about her business more than her because no one's going to see the returns. Yeah, exactly. But I think that's where her focus is, on the returns. And in the short term, at least, people working to the death, day and night, for her is what's going to make her the most amount of money. That's kind of, I think, what it comes down to, right? Yes, but it's... I just... I think she's misguided if she thinks that employees will ever view her business as if it's their own why doesn't she just relocate to china (laughs) like honestly you know if she's so on board with workers rights and entitlements or workers practices whatever you want to call them up there why is she here well because then she won't be able to have you seen her office they're all clones of her they all have white (laughs) hair and they they wear black and they're very tall (laughs) she can recruit all her white clones with her like obviously there is a reason why she is in this country right there are some rights and entitlements that she is afforded here that she would not be afforded in a communist state where you know unions don't exist I think it just must I'm really hoping that this crazy behavior because I feel like the legal profession people don't go out and say these anymore because it can really damage that brand Mm. but I I feel like it must be like a media thing because like I listen to a lot of interviews with like Mia Friedman Mm -hmm. and the way that she views work ethic like for instance on this week's episode of Mamma Mia Out Loud um, they were having a whole conversation about how she is judgmental about people with hotmail addresses in recruitment why because she thinks, like, you're not professional. Why? And this was all sparked by the <laughs> debate about whether or not um, some recruiter said that if you don't send a thank you email after a job interview, then they write you off. Like, these unwritten rules, which, um, as Jesse Stevens, one of the um, girls on the podcast pointed out, has an element of classism to it. Because if either anyone here has ever read Alice Pong's book about unpolished 
Gem, I think it's called, mm. her memoir, she talks about growing up in the western suburbs of Melbourne and how when she got her first job interview, she was wearing clothes from like, like re- a really big suit from Best and Less, um, had like a really uncool like mm-hmm. Velcro backpack with her. Mm-hmm. She didn't know any of the conventions because you know she wasn't brought up around people like this. So for this unwritten rule about fucking sending a thank you email so that you strategically are put at the forefront of the um, person's mind, you wouldn't know that without being told that. If yeah. you didn't breathe that, if you didn't have parents who um, are, you know, um, literate and able to, and employment literate. Mm. Like my parents never gave me any career advice because all they've ever known is a blue collar life. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, yeah. Well, listen, you know my feelings about Mia Friedman, so I mean, I'm not going to go like there. Her. I don't, yeah. Anyway. She's I'm a successful business owner. Okay. <laughs> I don't think that says much about her value as a person. I know. But... It, it's worked to her advantage. So, mm. you know, for all my singing, maybe she's doing the right thing. Maybe her and Roxy are doing absolutely the best business decisions that um, one can make. Mm. All right. Now on to something much lighter. Maths. This is your topic, so I'm going to let you. <laughs> um, oh, my God. So many feelings. Um, so, first of all, three million Australians tuned in to the finale, which is, like, mind-blowing. Um, I actually couldn't believe that stat when I read it. Like, it does three feel like. Million. Yeah. Like, it feels like everyone around me is watching the show or was watching the show, but I just had no idea how contagious it was. Um, so the first question I kind of wanted like a view on, um, from you was why do you think it's drawn in so much like support? I think it's actually one of the most um, democratizing shows on TV. And I think it's, it's something that's transcended along like socioeconomic lines, Mm -hmm. um, in terms of like being spoken about in the workplace on discussion boards and stuff like that, because you don't have to be very learned to watch it. And also it's a guilty pleasure. So you don't need to be, um, you know, it's not something people thumb their nose at necessarily. Cause it's like oh, maths. Like I was having a conversation with a client and they were, they were a senior executive. Mm-hmm. And then he just started talking about maths with me. He's like, is it too late for me to get started on maths? And I was like, what? Oh, my God. That's and this amazing. is like a 40-something-year-old guy. Um, and so it has that ability to generate chatter, mm-hmm. to bring us all together. I know that sounds really lame. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also something that we never watch TV as a country anymore mm. like you know there's very few things that we all sit down and we all message each other and it's like oh my god are you watching this oh it's an ad break oh. like you know <laughs> we're all going through it together and that's really rare like I haven't seen any tv show that's brought that together maybe the footy brings people together like that mm. no I tend to agree with you what's um, your thoughts about why people are drawn to it I think I think both those things. So I think it's definitely a form of escapism. Um, so for me, yeah, it just means that I just switch off and I can just, yeah, indulge a different side of myself. Um, but I also think, you know, for all the criticism that's um, thrown at it, mm. um, there are some sort of important lessons to take out of it as well. So I know that at least for us, it's prompted some really interesting discussions about, um, you know, men and women in relationships Mm. and especially observing really toxic behaviours in relationships. 
Um, so I think um, in the finale week, there were a series of episodes. Um, oh, they drew that out, by the way, for I two mean, weeks. I'm really glad they did that, though. No, but like, that whole episode <laughs> on Heidi and Mike was not necessary. Which episode? Like, you know, the week before, how they had just a whole hour episode. <gasps> oh, And I was yeah. like, oh, my God, can we please just get to the point? Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, listen, three million Australians were watching, and I'm sure okay, the producers yeah. were well aware of that fact. So they were going to hold on to that attention for as long as possible. Um but, yeah, I think going back to that point about um, taking some important lessons out of it in terms of, like, how men and women behave in relationships, um, there were two particular male characters who I think really um, clearly exemplified what it's like to engage in really toxic masculine behaviours. Um, so for those of you who don't know, um, the two men that I'm talking about in particular are Sam and Mike. Um, so Sam was one of like your more central characters in the earlier half of the show. Yeah, until he left. Yeah, so he was um, matched up with a character called, I shouldn't say character, a person mm. called Elizabeth, um, whom he spent most of the time gaslighting. Um, well, let's just um, let uh, remind everyone that the first sight of his bride was like, she's definitely a lot bigger than what I go for. Yeah, and he's like, maybe I can get her running in the mornings. Ha, ha, ha. Oh, he was so bad. And then, like, they would have those boys' nights where he'd just be, like, humiliating her, like, saying, oh, and then she tried to kiss me, and then she tried to put, my, you know, her finger down my mouth. And, yeah, he was just a horrible human being and then embarked on, like, a relationship, if you want to call it that, with another one of the wives on the show, like, called Innes, and then made all these promises about being with her outside of the actual TV show and then basically ditched her in a heartbeat. When she became a bit more clingy. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I thought that was, like, a prime example of um, men just being really emotionally abusive. And totally gaslighting their partners because obviously his wife had no idea about the way he was talking about her. Well, hang on, it, it, doesn't, back. it doesn't quite end there when you talk about the gaslighting stuff. The gaslighting stuff really came out when questioned about his behavior. He'd just be like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, mm. you know, when um, they were shouting at him or whatever. I think it was like very recent episodes and he was just sitting there with a smirk on his face taking mm. absolutely no responsibility for his actions mm. when like Ines who was like the villain was like breaking down in tears for some reason um well I think she'd obviously caught on to what had happened like you could see she was really invested in him and the relationship and for her to more or less ghost her the way he did she alluded to the fact that you know as soon as they were off the show he like blocked her of all, like, various social media forums and blocked her number and all the rest of it. And, yeah, it would have been a really sort of disempowering experience for her. Absolutely. Weirdly, I remember how we thought she was, like, more or less psychotic. She seems psychotic. I still stand by that assessment. I mean, I definitely think she's got her issues. She's a but, sociopath. But on the later episodes, I found her to be quite empathetic. Is that because there's a passage of time since these reunion episodes mm, no I think she just naturally evolved as a person like she came on that reunion episode 
and apologised for what she'd done. She apologised to Bronson, who was her husband on the show. She apologised to Elizabeth, who was Sam's wife on the show. And she just, I think, unlike Sam, who didn't even show up to the reunion, took accountability for what she did. Mm. And I was not expecting that from her, given how brazen she was about you know, going behind her husband's back and doing what she did. So I'm still quite shocked then. Shocked about what? Ines's behaviour after that, like the whole sort of 180 that she took. Mm. Because she, in the earlier episode, she was very stony, like just Mm. a a wall essentially. Like she knew what she wanted. She seized it at all costs. And so it was very much a turnaround to actually see that she has emotions. Mm. I thought that was surprising. Mm. Um, the other one that you, we've both been talking about, and I think we talked about in the last episode, was Mike and Heidi. Yeah. Mike has not gotten better with it, with time. Well, um, he had some really questionable remarks on the reunion special. Um, did you want to bring them up? He, So he, he said a couple of things. The psychologists, if we call them that. Quote, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> um, they were questioning Elizabeth about her relationship with Sam. Oh, and right. she was more or less going on a tirade about what a horrible human being he was. <laughs> and mm. at this point, Mike decided he it's, needed it's to have turn? a say. All yeah. right. And he said, uh, there's a few things I'd like to point out. I think groups of women under pressure don't cope as well as groups of men under pressure. Okay. Mike, I'd like to see you try and, you know, give birth to a child or have to rear a child, you know, um, or juggle all those responsibilities. Like, if that's not pressure, then I don't know what is. Mm -hmm. And also, it's a fucking crazy generalisation. I also do remember that he had an episode where he appeared on Sunrise and talked about, or was it the Today Show? I mean, it wouldn't make sense that it's. Um, One of those terrible morning TV shows. Yeah, and he was talking about, like, toxic femininity. Uh, and this is where Clem Ford, you tagged me into it. Oh, wait. So um, I think Clem Ford had commented on what a horrible human being he was. <laughs> <laughs> she was a bit more diplomatic in the way she phrased it, but it was still quite harsh. And then he, like, responded in turn and was just calling her out for, you know, being a really judgmental person and that. Um, I can't remember the specifics now in the last Yeah, stretch. and he was trying to gaslight her again. Yeah. He yeah. was trying to make her seem like the overreactive one and the yeah. crazy one when it's like, um, Mike, it's actually your behaviour that is, you know, <laughs> it's, it's at fault. And the, the thing that shits me about this whole TV show is that no one's pulled him up. These so-called psychologists have not pulled him up at mm-hmm. all for this behaviour. He, he's been able to run... Same with Sam. Mm. Both of them have been able to run a mark and no one has pulled them up for either of it. Yeah, that's really annoyed me too. I'm, you know, that's not to say that some of the women have not engaged in really questionable behaviour, but I feel like whenever that's happened, the women have had a lot to answer for it, um, probably more than their fair share. Um, so, for example, after the whole Elizabeth, Innes and Sam debacle, it was Elizabeth, not sorry, Elizabeth, it was Innes that was copying all the hate on social media. Like everyone was talking about the I think fact. she didn't help herself with that. Oh, she didn't at all. But having said that, that doesn't excuse the fact that he was also being really horrible in that situation. Yeah. But he wasn't getting death threats. He wasn't getting rape threats. Mm. That was all assumed by her. I have to say, though, some of the people who have been commenting. Like, I saw um, Lauren, who was with the Virgin, 
she just cops some really random threats from women being, it was a woman in this particular Instagram mm. post, DM'd her, took all this effort to DM um, Lauren and was like, you're a filthy slut, I hope you die in a hole. And it's like, what um, inspires someone to do that? Because that's mm. an active step. It's not as if you just accidentally click like. It's like typing stuff mm. of hatred to someone you don't even know based on something you just watched on TV. Mm-hmm. And so, actually, this brings me to the next one that I was going to talk about, which was um, Cyril and Martha. <laughs> and I just want to talk about female dynamics mm-hmm. in this show. So how did you feel about the way that the women bonded in this show as opposed to the guys? Um, I think it's hard to generalise because there was a lot of divergence in terms of the types of women that were on the show. So you had some women that really bonded and sort of created this sisterhood. So I'm thinking of women like Jules and Ning and Heidi. Like those were women that really had each other's backs. They were also older. They They were were older. Yeah, that's fair. Um, But then obviously you had sort of these women that more or less were um, threatened by the other women on the show, so the likes of Martha and Cyrell and Jess and Innes and, to a lesser extent, Okay, Elizabeth. so all the girls under 30. Yeah, and listen, I don't think that says anything about women under 30 or women over 30. I mean, obviously, when the producers are casting for a show like this, they're not going to only cast women that have really strong female friendships and back each other up. That doesn't make for really entertaining television, Mm. right? So I think we need to bear that in mind too because, frankly, the really toxic relationships between some of the women on the show does not at all resemble any of the relationships that I have with the women in my life and I'm under 30. So That's true. But I was also just wondering whether or not – I think it was pretty interesting seeing um, Sorrell's physical um, altercations with a number of people there and that that was all directed towards the women Mm. it wasn't and like you said the guys acted inappropriately Mm. here too and so you know and they didn't cop any of it I feel like what you were saying with Innes is true with the women here um that it was disproportionately directed towards the other female candidate um Mm. not candidates contestants rather than addressing the issue at hand, which is, you know, behaviour of men, Mm. often fueled by toxic masculinity, which is a word that I'm sure is going to be banned after this year. (laughs) But why do you think that is? Why do you think... Easier target. Why are they an easier target? I think mentally you just think, okay, I'm not going to deal with the guy because, like, that's too hard. I'm just going to go to the girl. Uh Uh-huh physically and also psychologically like you're more sort of on the same page like I felt like there was a lot more scheming at with certain clusters of the female contestants Mm -hmm. than there were with the male contestants how much of that do you think was a a product of the casting of those types of women and b just also like a lot of the editing on that show yeah no I think so too but it doesn't help that that as you said three million people watched this social experiment Mm. so what are people learning from this show Mm. And it kind of shows sort of the darker side of it too, which is there's a lot of toxic behaviour that was allowed to go through the goals, mm. um, wasn't ca- called out, and it wasn't until people on social media called it out that people, yeah, that they received backlash for their behaviour. Mm. I mean, I think these attitudes 
pre-exist shows like maths though like Completely. I feel like a lot of people are prone to thinking this way about groups of women and groups of men to begin with so having that sort of behavior portrayed on television is that not just a good way of actually getting those issues like into conversation like I feel like we do need to be talking about these things mm. and perhaps a show like maths is like a useful springboard to have those discussions which is what we've used this a whole segment to talk about I think with people identifying behavior with people like Mike is really useful mm. um, because a lot of people may not know that they're dating someone like Mike yeah because his behavior in particular is a lot more insidious you know, totally. It's not like he goes out of his way to like slap Heidi across the face or call her a bitch or a cunt. But he thinks he's a good guy. Yeah. That's the other thing. And I think, yeah, that kind of good guy behavior, and I'm using quotation marks when I say that, mm. um, is particularly um, destructive because it's not so easy to call out. No. And also they're just like, what do you mean? I'm a good guy. What am I doing mm. wrong? Yeah, I'm not hitting you. I'm not cheating oh, on you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Does that remind you of someone? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's exactly. like, claps. <laughs> Gold star for good you. Good for you. You're not being, you're not committing um, family violence. <laughs> no offences here. But, um, no, I think, yeah, you're right. I think you can have both, though. I, I just, I think we just have to be a bit more mindful as well about what we're consuming mm. and what messages we take out of it because it's fair enough that we're critiquing it, but I'm sure there's lots of people who would just take it at face value. And I know teenage Anna would have definitely been like, yep, that's an appropriate way to treat someone. Yeah. Because there was no calling out in the show. And it wasn't until yeah. the final episode, really, that people, all the dirty laundry was aired. Everyone saw it. And then a lot of calling out was happening by the older contestants mostly. So mm. by Heidi and by, um, I think it was Ning called out as well. It was mm. just a lot of really bad behavior in this this year's season. Yeah, but I tend to agree with you. I think the show could have been a lot more effective had the quote-unquote psychologists in particular been readily calling out this behavior from the very start. They're psychologists. My psychologist would call out this behavior if I told her about it. Mm. So I just don't get that. Yeah. Anyway, moving on to our final segment. So recommendations. I see that you've got a number and I'm just going to have to. <laughs> I do see that one of your recommendations is The Cut it's... on Tuesdays. I love. Yeah, I'm pretty sure this was one of your recommendations yeah, a while back. Um, I think you highlighted a particular episode, but I've just been churning through this oh, podcast. I wanted to talk um, a, actually a segment in this week's podcast about uh, this week's the cut podcast oh. with you did you listen to the the one about family money yes i did oh my god i okay. listened to it the other day we may you need wanna... to save the content for another time because i think that's a really interesting conversation yeah yeah um when they talked about like the descendant of disney yeah and like how you have money and how she dealt with having immense wealth but what i didn't care so much for that what i cared about was the rep that they interviewed the representative for it was like a democratic candidate I don't recall that. Oh, hold on a minute. Was she someone that had accumulated a lot yes. of debt? And yes. she was talking about her experience of being vilified? Well, she has to that? declare them. Yeah. And I was just like, this is a fucked system mm. where she's got like a black um, mark against her name as a candidate mm. because she accumulated so many debts. And I was actually thinking of you when I was listening to this because um, she accumulated a lot of the debt paying for her parent, mm. her dad's cancer treatment mm. and um, student debt. Like it's not free to do a JD over there. You would think someone like that would be even better equipped to run for public office because they actually know what it's like to not have money. As opposed to fucking Donald Trump. Yeah. yeah. Who also, you know, was 
declared himself bankrupt how many different times? I think that was also discussed in the episode, yeah. sort of, you know, why is it that I, as an African-American woman running in this particular electorate, am being treated so differently from a white man who has declared himself bankrupt, bankrupt. on numerous occasions. And it is notoriously shit with money. Yeah, yeah. So that's my recommendation. I'm going to let you take the rest of the mantle. Oh, no. Well, I just generally want to promote this podcast. Love it. Um, because it's more or less just women mm. um, that are hosting. Yeah. And, like, every single episode is about 30 to 45 minutes in length. Oh, it's shorter than that. It's, yeah. It's not long enough. Yeah, they're really quick, snappy episodes um, with just really interesting people. Some famous, some not so famous. So, like you said, the most recent episode is with, like, a descendant of Walt Disney. <laughs> um, there was a particular episode also... Um, Oh, I forget her name. I think it was, is it Rukmini Kalamachi? I think mm, that's how you I say it. I think I saw that in your car when you were driving. It was such a good episode. What, what was it about? So she is a war correspondent, correspondent, sorry, for the New York Times. Mm. And the part of her episode, well, the part of her interview that I found really interesting was when she was talking about how uh, one of the most important career decisions you will ever make is who you choose as a partner. Oh, that's very Cheryl Sandberg. It is. Um, but just it was just so on point because she was like, you know, I was very much used to dating whom we would refer to as nice guys. Oh, I thought she was going to say fuckboys. No, no, no. Like, well, they in, like, turn were actual fuckboys but presented as nice guys who said all the right things but, again, when it came down to it, weren't willing to compromise on anything to facilitate her ambitions. Um, and she was talking about how her current partner, who's like a PT, um, has sort of, yeah, given up a lot of his time mm. so that she can go off to like all these war-torn countries and report oh, on wow. conflicts and how everyone that she would come across would be like, wow, you are so lucky to have someone like that, that will, you know, allow you to do that kind of work. <gasps> yeah. I, I feel know. like Jacinda Ardern would have a lot to say about that. Yeah, I'm sure she's had to like deal with a lot of the same line of questioning. Um, but yeah, I just in general love that podcast. So good. Um, we need more like that in Australia, I think. Just more women like podcasts. In fact, I feel like most of the podcasts I listen to are generally hosted by women and same. are about women. Um, but yeah, another recommendation would be um, a new Netflix series called Russian Doll. Have I mentioned this to you? Yeah, you have. Yeah. So it's got um, <laughs> Natasha Lyon in it. Um, she is one of the lead characters in one of my favourite shows, Orange is the New Black. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say she is in American Pie. Why did you think that? Because she is in American Pie. Is she? Yeah. Natasha Lyon? Yeah. Is she the redhead with curly hair? I don't remember a redhead with curly hair. I'll send you the link. Yeah, send me the link. I don't know. I only know her That's from That's how Origin I know that name, yeah. Um, so she's co-created this show with Amy Poehler. Oh, okay. Yeah. You might need to watch this then. It's it's really interesting. It's, is it a comedy or is it a drama? Because it looks like a drama and I don't think I can deal with that. It fuses the two genres. So I would probably describe it as a dark comedy. Okay. That's where, okay. Yeah, she's in this time spiral where... Um, she keeps waking up to her 36th birthday mm. and dies at some point during the night. And each time she dies, she wakes up again to her birthday party. Oh, my God. This is like Groundhog Day. Yeah. It's like a more intelligent version of Groundhog Day. <laughs> um, but it's great because the reason why I started watching it, aside from the fact that it featured her, was because I heard her do an interview on The Cut. 
Oh. And she was talking about the fact that she'd made a deliberate choice to have a female-only writing room. Right. And only having female directors. And so I was like, you know what, I need to support the sisterhood. I'll watch this TV show. Okay. I didn't know that. Um, but yeah, it's just a really interesting and insightful show. It's really funny, but really depressing and touches on a lot of like big issues, you know, life, death, work, relationships, the whole gambit. So if you're looking for something new and engaging, I would highly recommend that. I think I will just put my final, my only other recommendation is I finished watching the entire season of Sex Education. Oh, so many people have been talking about this. It I need to watch really this. really good. What's so good about it? Um, I don't know. That's <laughs> the thing. I, I didn't expect to get sucked into it. I thought I'd just watch – it was just a night where I was like, well, it's on Netflix. Mm. And it's got um, Gillian Anderson in it from Oh, I love X-Files. her. Yeah. And it's, the lead character is apparently the boy in – the boy in the striped pajamas, like the lead character of that. Um, and it just, it's so sophisticated um, in terms of talking about sex and relationships in a teenage setting, but it's mm. equally applicable to adults. Um, and I think the other thing is it's so diverse. So I think I'm very used to what was being um, shown in our era, which is now that I look back on it, not very diverse relationships. Mm. Here we've got cultural diversity because it's set in like a small English town, but like everyone under the rainbow, um, you've got um, sexuality diversity. Mm. Um, one of the main characters is gay, but likes um, cross-dressing mm. and just bits and pieces of that like I think I this I, reminds me of why I was telling you I loved Orange is the New Black so much oh the diversity and yeah. that's the thing Australian content is absolutely devoid of this stuff yeah which is so sad um and because we we are such a diverse country it's just not reflected in anything we watch on the screen also we were meant to see single Asian female tonight yeah that was which is a thing of divert like one yeah of, it's written by an Asian woman. It's casted by a whole Asian woman. So I think slowly, like I've mm. seen the um, Melbourne International Comedy Festival lineup mm. has actually been really good on that front. Yeah, it's improved a lot on like past years. Heaps of Asians, heaps of Indians, mm. heap of, heaps of um, like, you know, I think people like Nazim Hussain um, and Lawrence Lung and um, that guy that used to be on everything, can't remember his name, but he was on Crazy Rich Asians recently. Um, they paved the way for um, a- Asian comedians mm. to, you know, take take the mic. Mm. Um, we just need to see more women, I think. Oh, right. So you didn't see a whole lot of women. I saw lineup. a ra- – I didn't see a whole heap of them, but maybe I wasn't looking at them. But I actually went to see a really random – um, stand-up comedian called Diana Nguyen um, because I was like, you know what, I'm going to support this, mm. you know, um, she's not very well known. And um, Was it good? Yeah, it was good. It was still sort of – you can tell she's new, mm. I think, um, when they still need to refine some of their comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely not like a Will Anderson-type polished mm. production. I mean, Will Anderson's been around forever too. For, for decades. I'm sure his early gigs were – Nowhere no near polish. the same quality, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And so I think if anyone is listening and still, you know, um, the Melbourne Comedy Festival, I think is it ends this week, I would really encourage everyone to support, like, unknown mm. people and, like, women and people of colour um, because it's harder. Like, it's already hard being a comedian and adding on top of that, the cultural stuff and the racial barriers, especially in Australian society, like, Diana Nguyen was saying that she's only cast for being, like, 
the um, sex worker or being mm. the I think her, she's well known for being in underbelly as like a <laughs> Chinese restaurant um, person being held up right anyway that's all we've got time for this week um, hopefully you've enjoyed this episode I just also want to say we've been misleading the audience because we now have two mics um, so <laughs> oh my god yes you need to prop up the fact that we have proper mics I know in a very very professional setup if only you could see what we're doing now (laughs) but also this had nothing to do with that one star rating we got right no absolutely not (laughs) but it did prompt me to realize there are people who are listening to this i know to the point where we can get ratings now so that's good that's good but it also meant we had to up our gain in terms of looking a bit more professional sounding a bit more professional and hopefully you continue enjoying listening um, and rating us well on iTunes. <laughs> no pressure. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.